what does it mean to experience a deadly epidemic? In recent months, people have struggled with this question, but it's not a new question. Welcome to Experiencing Epidemics podcast. We are Gaspar Jakovac, Jorge Diaz Ceballos, and Ian Hathaway. And we want to explore this question as historians by delving into personal narratives drawn from the long history of people's encounters with epidemics. We do so thanks to the contributions of scholars based at the European University Institute and beyond. This project is brought to you as part of the COVID-19 Knowledge Hub of the European University Institute. Enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Experiencing Epidemics podcast. My name is Gaspar Jakovac and on today's show we'll turn to the most famous of Renaissance humanists, Dutch scholar Desiderius Erasmus, or otherwise known as Erasmus of Rotterdam. In 1500, an outbreak of plague in Paris forced Erasmus to flee to Orléans. At the time, Erasmus had just published his first major work, The Edigies, and was corresponding with his friend Fausto Andrellini, an Italian poet in the service of the French king. In November 1500, Andrellini begged Erasmus to return to Paris, being convinced that the epidemic was waning and that the danger has all but disappeared. But Erasmus remained sceptical and cautious. To explore further Erasmus's epistolary response to Andrellini, I'll be talking to Brian Cummings, anniversary professor in the Department of English and Related Literature at the University of York and a fellow of the British Academy. Professor Cummings is currently a Leverhulme Major Research Fellow working on a project, Erasmus and the Invention of Literature. He's published widely on the culture of the Reformation, early modern literature and the history of the book. He's the author of several monographs, including the Literary Culture of the Reformation, Grammar and Grace, and Mortal Thoughts, Religion, Secularity and Identity in Shakespeare and Early Modern Culture, both for Oxford University Press. His latest book, based on his Clarendon lectures at Oxford University, will be published in January 2022. It's called Bibliophobia, The End and the Beginning of the Book. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. It's an honor to have you on the show. The historical source that we will focus on today 
is a letter written by Erasmus during a plague outbreak in Paris in 1500. But before we move on to talk about this letter, I was hoping you might tell us a bit more about Erasmus himself. Who was Erasmus? And at what stage of his life and career was he when this letter to uh, Fausto Andrelini was written? Okay, um, Erasmus is one of those people who's, who's really famous, uh, but in a way is famous for, for being famous. Um, I, I think really his name has an astonishing coverage, certainly in Europe, but actually in a, in a worldwide sense. Um, I think people might know that he wrote The Praise of Folly, which is still his most famous work, which is a, a work like no other, um, unbelievably funny, still really very readable 500 years later. I think also um, people are aware in a general way that um, he produced an edition of the New Testament. It was in fact the first printed edition of the New Testament in Greek. And that was an incredibly important thing because it's, um, it, it claimed, and in fact it was true, that it was restoring Christianity to its original texts. Um, uh, of course, the Greek church had been doing that right the way through, but the Latin church, the Church of Western Europe, um, and the church in, you know, in England and all, all of Northern Europe at this time, uh, was a translation. And so to produce a Greek text raised questions about um, what the New Testament is and how to read it. So those things are, are important about him. Uh, but in, in 1500, it's a very, it's a very interesting year. Um, he was in Paris at this point. Uh, he was well over 30 by this point. So Erasmus is always a very late developer. He's sort of training to be a theologian, but he sort of isn't. Um, and in the middle of this, in 1500, he printed his first, it's not quite his first published work, but it's his first work kind of under his own name. And it's in Paris that he print, that it's printed by Badius. And it's a book called The Adages and a collection of proverbs. Um, it's the work that he worked on for the rest of his life. There were about 800 in this first edition, but by the time he finished, there were over 4,000. Um, proverbs doesn't really give you a clue to what he does because he traces the origin of a proverb. And by in, to, in order to do that, he has to go back over an enormous range of ancient literature. There's a very interesting remark by Guillaume Boudet, the, the French humanist, uh, quite a while later, where he says that before this work came out, we all thought all of these proverbs belonged to everybody. But once they were printed in your book, they became your property. And we were sort of quoting from you. So he's kind of saying Erasmus becomes the owner of ancient literature through writing the adages. And that's a very, very interesting thing. But it's also, in a way, practically true because everybody owned a copy of the adages. There's an enormous number of these copies around in the century. And, you know, William Cecil's copies in Stanford University Library now and uh, in York Minster Library, there's a copy that, that was owned by the Archbishop. And, you know, th this is quite typical, but it's a very interesting book in the way that it works. People own it because it's a kind of personal guide to the classics. It, it, it's, it's an intimate work, even though it's a learned work. It's also very, very funny all the time. 
and but 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 in unexpected ways uh just when you're not thinking about it he'll throw you off ha, how interesting he was a funny chap wasn't he um but I'm also interested in this idea of Erasmus as a mediator of an extensive body of ancient law, so to speak, um, which is, of course, relevant to your uh, current research project called Erasmus and the Invention of Literature. What is your particular interest in Erasmus in his work? History of infectious disease doesn't seem to be central to your research. Am I right? Yes, well... Um the my project is to write a, a big book on Erasmus, which I hope people will will feel it's the sort of place they want to go to 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 find out the answer to the question of who, who is this person. Um, it, it will have something of the character of an intellectual biography, but I quite deliberately don't want to write a sort of year by year intellectual biography, which just sort of decides this in biographical terms. It's a thematic book. And it puts literature at the centre of the project, because I think Erasmus puts literature at the centre of his life. Now, what does that mean? I mean, in one sense, you could say that literature is um, is, a, is an ornamental part of life. You know, it's just it's it's the stuff we, we read when we're not doing serious work. Um, you know, it's what we read in airports or, or at bedtime. Actually, I think Erasmus turns that round. I think, um, and, and the, the, the the working title of my book is "The Art of Reading." Um, we, we tend to write the history of literature from the point of view of writers and how they work. And, of course, that's an interesting and important thing. Erasmus has got lots of things to say about writers. But actually, what he, I think what he's saying is that it's reading which is central, not writing. Um, how to read is actually itself a really complex question and a, a, a more fundamental one. Very few people will write poetry in their lives, but everybody reads all the time. And reading well, reading sensitively, reading intelligently, noticing the things that are not said as well as the things that are said, things that are said by not being said explicitly or whatever, this is how we lead our lives. It's an intricate and powerful um, uh, register for, for, for living. Um, and I think Erasmus is saying kind of that we are homo legens, we are a reading species, um, and that's still as powerfully true in the days of the internet as it was in the early days of print, which of course is uh, very much in the background of Erasmus's work. And, and one of the things that's interesting about him is he, he's one of the first really um, majorly, diversely available printed authors you know, who, who thinks of himself right from the start as a printed author and, and not just as an author in, in general terms. So I, I am talking about literature, but I'm talking about literature in a, I suppose in quite a, a fundamental way. And when we come to this letter and uh, about about plague. Um, what I was interested in, of course, was was not the history of medicine, but but letter writing. What are letters for? And it's another aspect of Erasmus's career which is very interesting. Is that I mean he's a very um, voluminous writer of letters, but the key thing is he collected his own letters. Uh, uh, like Petrarch, he thought that Cicero's letters from antiquity were, uh, you know, one of the great. Um, models of writing and um and he was trying quite self-consciously to become i suppose like petrarch you know the greatest writer of letters since antiquity um and i actually started my project with a little bit of a conundrum because although it was wonderful to have a research grant i was having a research grant in covid 
And I couldn't go to libraries, which is the first place I go to do my primary research. So I was having to rely on online editions. And so, I mean, I actually read this letter, I looked on my notes just now, on the 8th of October. My project started on the 1st of October. And I remember now what I did was I decided I would start reading letters in year groups. And I decided to start with 1500 because it was the year of the adages. Um, but then what I found is that letter writing is interesting as a literary form, but it's also an extraordinary form about what you might call the, uh, the mimesis of everyday life. Um, how do we create a sense of what, of what our lives are like? Uh, how, how do we perform that sense of our lives in front of others? How do they interpret us through that? Um, and of course, his letters also collect the letters of the other people who write to him as well. And so there's this colloquy in writing uh, all the time that's, that's going on. Letter writing as the mimesis of everyday life. This makes a lot of sense to me. Of course, our experiences are always mediated. We comprehend the world around us through particular cultural frameworks, consciously or unconsciously. Equally, uh, when we communicate our beliefs and experiences to others, we are again relying on certain commonplaces and rhetorical strategies, which, of course, vary according to the genre of writing and themes that we are addressing. And indeed, this element of conscious performativity in letter writing, as you say, is quite obvious in Erasmus's letter. My servant, acting on your instructions and using words prescribed by you, has called me craven for moving to a new territory out of fear of some trifling plague or other. This would be an intolerable insult if it were addressed to a Swiss guardsman, but it fails to make any impression on one who is a poet fond of sheltered and leisured existence. Really, I consider total absence of fear in a situation such as mine to be the mark, not of a valiant fellow, but of a dolt. When one is faced with an enemy who can be driven off or thrown back or defeated by active resistance, it is then that anyone who wishes to show himself a hero may do so, as far as I'm concerned. But the celebrated Hydra of Lerna, the last and most difficult of Hercules's labors, could not be mastered by the sword, yet could overcome by Greek fire. What, I ask, are you going to do with an invisible and invincible pestilence like this one? Sometimes escape is better than victory. Hero as he was, Aeneas refused to come to grips with the sirens, but steered his course well away from that dangerous shore. But you tell me there is no actual danger. Yes, but I see plenty of men dying without falling foul of danger. I am like the fox in Horace, terrified because those footprints mostly point to you and none point back.
What particularly struck me in the passage we just heard is the reference to the plague as the invisible enemy. Coronavirus that causes COVID-19 has been repeatedly referred to as the invisible enemy, so we're quite familiar with this phrase. It makes Erasmus's sense of fear and powerlessness something we can immediately relate to, I think. But the main question, of course, is how we act in the face of such danger. Erasmus, unlike Andrelini, counsels extra caution. Sometimes escape is better than victory, he says. So, what did you find interesting about the letter when you first read it, and how did you interpret Erasmus's advice? Yeah, I mean, my first, what first pulled me into this letter, of course, you know, we're, we're talking about October 2020. Um, what pulled me in was this phrase, invisible enemy, and the human dilemma that um, he constructs with such economy in just a, a few bare lines. Um, and as often in Erasmus, he does so by, by means of a classical quotation, of getting used to this as a method from the adages themselves. And so he, he, he quotes from, from the Aeneid, not necessarily from the place where you expect him to quote from, from the Odyssey, but from the Aeneid, where Aeneas um, decides not to face the sirens. Um, uh, you know, the opposite of, of Odysseus. And uh, that also takes him, I suppose, in, in, in a background sense, into Aeneas as a, as a model for a certain kind of heroism. And Aeneas is the passive hero. He's, he's the hero who uh, often um, evades confrontation rather than seeks confrontation in, in the way that I suppose we take off as being how we think of you know, military valour as being. Um, another clue might be the way that, just slightly jokingly, he refers to himself as being a, a poet rather than a soldier in the very, very first, more or less the first line of, of the letter. Um, well, it's Andrelini who is the poet. Andrelini is a kind of poet laureate in, uh, in Paris, outside of the official faculty, um, famous for being Italian, basically. Um, and uh, he, he, he does sort of extracurricular lectures in humanism in the way that was very, very fashionable at this time. Now, Erasmus wants to be part of that circle, but actually Erasmus doesn't totally respect Andrelini. You don't get that sense from this letter. Uh, but uh, you do from later letters that uh, he actually thinks Andrelini is a bit of a charlatan. Um, but he he poses himself as a poet and as being an Aeneas figure in order to suggest something about ethics. And I think then it becomes really interesting. And certainly I felt a chord straight away when I was reading it. I mean, at this point, I was... 200 miles away from both of my children. I really wanted to see them. And, you know, I'll be talking to them. My younger son is in, in London. You know, he's, he's a young man. He's, he's a musician. He's, he doesn't need me in a daily sense. But he wanted to see me and I wanted to see him. And we were grappling with this invisible enemy. Um, how do you take it seriously? How do you properly come to terms with it? Could I perhaps go down to London at that point? You know, people were starting to move around a bit. But at the same time, we knew that uh, 
that the the odds were problematic because not so much I mean, not so much the question of the odds of getting the disease, but what would happen to you if you got it, and I, I thought that was a powerful uh, way that Erasmus um, suggested the the ethical question of what responsibility do you have to stay alive yourself, um, mm-hmm. and and how how should you use that to uh, to govern your decisions because most of moral advice that's that's given in books of moral philosophy tends to be a bit kind of uh, a bit vague about that kind of thing and instead presents these sort of test cases of how to be a a really really you know terrific human being and, and you know we can congratulate ourselves on our actions because we've done a really nice thing or a really conspicuously good thing but but here this is a a much stranger kind of morality of what responsibility we have as in a way to our own bodies and our own lives. Such being the aspect of things, I should have no hesitation in fleeing, not merely to Orléans, but west to Cadiz by the Pillars of Hercules, or north to the remotest of the remote Orkney Islands. Not because I am timorous and effeminate, but to avoid a genuine reason for fear. Not to shun death, for to die are we all born, but to avoid dying by my own fault. Inasmuch as Christ bade his apostles escape the sword of persecution by moving, occasionally, from town to town, shall I, not evade an encounter with a foe so deadly, when I am able to do so with ease. Even so, it is partly my muses who are urging me to go back, for they feel the cold acutely here, in the company of a corso Bartolo and Baldo, and partly this keen and cruel frost, which is only too well adept to killing off completely all vestiges of the disease. But still, I have some reservations on account of those traces of the fierce conflagration, smoke and smell, ash, and even perhaps sparks neath treacherous cinders hid. As much as Erasmus's pleading for prudence is admirable, it's also difficult to get rid of the sense that he's trying to ironically justify his cowardice by selectively reading the Gospels. Surely a more Christian thing to do would be to help the sick and the needy in Paris rather than escape to Orkney Islands, as he says. After all, Erasmus was also an ordained priest, So, is there any evidence to suggest that Erasmus was particularly fearful of the disease? Or is he being a bit ironic and perhaps even hypocritical when promoting self-care, which some might deem excessive? Yes, the the first thing you need to realise about Erasmus is that he's a serious hypochondriac. Uh, If you read through the letters as I've been doing, and I've read about a thousand of them this year now, um, you know, the number that's 
provide you with too much detail about Erasmus's symptoms uh, you know, is, is just very, very big. And uh, he's also, but he's also interested, I think, in morbidity and in mortality in ways that resonate very much with us. And we do have to realise that plague is a very serious business at this time. Um, there are outbreaks of plague all the time, or things that are people call plague. And, uh, you know, the statistics for them can be pretty frightening. I mean, uh, one example is 1517, so this is a long time after this letter, um, when uh, one of Erasmus's great friends, Andrea Ramonio, dies of plague. He's an Italian, but he's living in England in 1517. And in, in the, you know, from the evidence that we have, I and mean, what is said is that 400 people die in Oxford in that year, which I can't quite believe because the population of Oxford was around about 3,500 at the time. Um, so perhaps there is an element of exaggeration here, but nonetheless, it, you know, people are dying and dying and dying. And in Oxford in that year, interestingly for us, uh, Corpus Christi College had just been founded um, and Erasmus was the sort of hero of its foundation and, and helped to provide a syllabus for it. And, um, and the students just wouldn't turn up. It's a new college, and it's just getting going. And the students stayed away uh, because they were frightened. And I think being frightened is something then that Erasmus is also interested in. We're interested in it now. Um, in this letter, as now, other people often behave as if they're not as frightened as they really are. Um, or they use religion to justify a different kind of attitude towards it. Um, but it was very striking in the COVID year. I don't know if you felt this, Hester, when, when just in the very, very early weeks that's um, the imams in, in Iran, where there was a raging plague at the time, um, were saying, don't come to prayers, uh, which is an, you know, uh, an interesting thing for an imam to say. And, and similarly, in, in northern Italy, in, uh, in Bergamo, where, where again, the, the, the COVID was just so terrifying, the churches were being used as morgues, not as places for prayer. Now, that's not to make fun of people for... Uh, for suddenly being hypocritical. I think that's completely the wrong attitude. Um, uh, and I think, I suppose, in a way, Erasmus's letter is about hypocrisy and about sincerity um, and, and about how you place yourself within that. What I also found fascinating is how Erasmus avoids any sort of fatalism or speculation about the cause of contagion, such as God's wrath. Uh, this causes that we've explored in previous episodes of this podcast, and it would have been common in the period. Instead, he's being very pragmatic. He's simply interested in the most reasonable human response possible to a deadly natural phenomenon beyond our control. So I wanted to ask you, to what extent do you think is Erasmus's thinking unique? He doesn't refer to it in providential terms. Mm -hmm. He doesn't think this is God's punishment for us. And he doesn't judge our actions in relation to it in terms of fatalism. Fatalism, of, of, whether of a Christian kind or, or of a, 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 a more ancient kind. Um, instead, he deals with it 
uh, as a symptom and as, as, we, as we would say, an epidemiology, a pathology, um, we can see that this is affecting people at a very fast rate. Uh, we can see that people are dying and we have to decide what we do in relation to that. And I think actually there's a very serious ethics here going on. I mean, Erasmus is, a, is undoubtedly a Christian thinker, but he's also a very original thinker. And I, his version of Christianity in some ways is, I don't know, 300 years ahead of its time. Um, you know, Kant or, or Rousseau would talk about uh, Christianity as a kind of moral religion, and they were certainly criticized for, for doing so. But Erasmus is, is making a, a moral religion in the 16th century himself. And he thinks that Cicero and Seneca are often as good guides to life as, as anybody. And he also quotes Augustine on that point, but Augustine says they are too. And one of the things I think Erasmus got a lot of contempt for is this pseudo-religion of providentialism, which says that, uh, you know, because 100 people have died in a place, that must show that God's very angry with them. Uh, with them. Uh, um, I, I think Erasmus probably would think that that was a very cruel and kind of God that you don't want to believe in. Uh, but he also thinks it's a ridiculous way of understanding uh, uh, experience. Um, if you like, it's a scientific understanding that he has. It, it, it's certainly a very sceptical one. And like a lot of sceptical thinking, it, it involves ironising his own actions and those of others very quickly because he understands the complexity of decision-making. I was struck by the passage where Erasmus says that he does not stay out of Paris for fear of dying but to avoid dying by his own fault. Of course, we all strive to avoid death, but in practice there are limits and disagreements about what we can reasonably do to make a difference. Andrelini uh, seemed to have thought that Erasmus was exaggerating, uh, just as some today might think that those who keep uh, prudently avoiding crowded spaces and hugging friends or keep wearing masks in public in spite of the changes to the government guidelines are simply being foolish. So I wanted to ask you to what extent does the uh, classical virtue of prudence matter in how Erasmus articulates his response to the plague and how that response might relate to our own predicament today? I think that you're spot on. Um, that um, prudence, um, which you know, is an idea which is developed in a number of different ways in, in classical thinking. Um, in, in Aristotle, it, it, it's about decision-making, about making decisions between ones which are possible and ones which are probable and and ones which involve necessity and so on. Um, but it also uh, is, is part of um, the Stoic philosophy that Erasmus is very familiar with through Seneca and in a slightly more ambiguous way through, through Cicero, where Stoicism um, regards self-control as the highest virtue uh, that, that we our bodies are, are prone to complex outside forces and for that matter our bodies are prone to passions and emotions which don't seem to be under our control and so the highest value is in self-control and only through self-control can you find true freedom now like a lot of intelligent thinkers in the post-classical period 
Erasmus is probably attracted to Stoicism at some level, but also um, uh, ambiguous about it and critical of it. Actually, the extra uh, edge here is that Erasmus is very attracted to Epicureanism um, at some level. It's a very dangerous level of thinking in, in the period. Epicureanism has become subject to an absurd modern cliche that it's about the pursuit of of pleasure as if it was about sort of just watching tv uh, uh, or for that matter just having sex um er er erasmus is attached attracted to i think in a more philosophical sense where epicureanism is in so obviously it's the opposition of stoicism where rather than thinking that everything is involved in in avoiding life in some sense actually you need to embrace life yes life is outside of your control but that's the life that you live and you, you need to be able to feel comfortable with that so i think there is a sort of side to this which which is involved with uh prudence in the um in the in the sort of ethical tradition um and then taking care of yourself matters in that way but i think there's also this other way of thinking about care and self which is you have to embrace your own life as it is um and uh erasmus is not a prude and he is not prissy and he's not a puritan at all um he loves wine he writes about food all the time he writes about his own body all the time um I am fairly, well, no, I am totally convinced that he loved other men. And uh, although we will never prove it in the absurd sense that we take of, uh, of documentary proof of a sex life, uh, I think there are plenty of clues that he has sex relationships with other men, um, not with women. Uh, he doesn't write totally frankly about his own love life but he writes about love with huge, huge interest and passionate concern. And I think Erasmus is, um, in, in this profound way, trying to understand what it is like to live a life uh, and to be happy in yourself at some level with the life that you have. And that that is also a form of care and self. say that this the letter when I read it I mean you know it totally grabbed me because of the personal connection with circumstances I felt this fear myself I felt this uh, ambiguity about how to react to fear should I take more risks as so many people were saying that it would be okay to well the answer to that came you know in the new year in what is correctly called the third wave rather than the second wave when um, by com complete by accident, you know, my own family started to, my, my brother and, and, and my sister-in-law caught the disease. My sister-in-law was in hospital. 
you know, we were really, really frightened. Um, she's fine. But that's, that's the risk of life. And at that point, you realise that the risk of life is very central to it. And so trying to evade risk and trying to talk about risk as if it belongs to other people is a complete misunderstanding of, of what it is to, 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 to go through day by day uh, your own experience. But embracing risk doesn't mean to say taking unnecessary risks. And so the, the letter actually made me pretty well on the point of tears because of a recognition uh, in the letter uh, in, a, in a way that seemed utterly modern, absolutely of now, that Erasmus was trying to take, um, take an understanding of his own life in those moments. And he does it with irony. He jokes about himself. Um, he refers to books that he likes. Um, that line in Horace in the, in the Horace letters, which of course are verse letters about um, the, the footsteps of the fox, which is clearly a metaphor for a sense of your own mortality. The, you can see the footprints and they only go in one direction and they stop at a certain point. That is a metaphor for death. And uh, I found the letter just spoke so clearly to me of, uh, of what it is to know that you're going to die and to fear that you're going to die, but to have to make some kind of sense of it all the same. Um, yeah, he could have been writing in, uh, in October 2020 rather than in uh, November 1500. Many thanks to Professor Brian Cummings for sharing his immense knowledge and passion for Erasmus's work, as well as his personal experience of the COVID pandemic. Although the past is a foreign country, it can often speak directly to us through centuries. Thank you also to my colleague Ian Hathaway for reading the excerpts from the letter and to all our listeners for tuning in. Experiencing Epidemics team will be back one last time for the final episode soon. Our guest will be Dr. Anka Kretu, who will be speaking to us about epidemics and refugee camps in Austria-Hungary during the World War I. Until then, thank you for listening and stay safe. <laughs>